Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 151. My name is Aro ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu Malkinu, our Father, our King, Lord, we ask that you will be with us tonight once again, as we know that you are faithful. We come, Lord, to study your words, and we come to expect to be blessed. We know, Lord, that you are faithful and that your words are true, they're trustable, they're reliable. They are uh, the very thing that you have inspired, that you've given to us by the presence of your Ruach HaKodesh, your Holy Spirit, to help us lead lives that are pleasing to you. Um, we want to um, we want to study so that we can um, be equipped as a body, so that we can uh, have a witness, uh, so that we can have a, a, a testimony to share with other people around us, uh, the gospel, the good news, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, uh, the, the power of salvation found exclusively in the name Yeshua, our Messiah. Lord, we ask that you would um, uh, give us a heart for the lost. Help us to see with the eyes that you have, see with your eyes, um, the very real need that people need a Savior. They don't know they need a Savior, but they do need they do need. And so, Lord, we are your hands. We are your feet. Like Whiteheart used to say, we are your people. And you have given us this task, this great commission to take the good news uh, around the world. And Lord, that starts with our own smaller circles of influence. So um, help us to be bold. Help us to be um, uh, loving. Help us to be um, direct. Um, but help us to just share a, a, a good word, um, even if it's just sharing our testimony. Um, it starts there. We thank you, Lord, that uh, we're able to meet together and strengthen one another during these difficult times. We pray that you will continue to um, protect us, raise us up, strengthen us. And we thank you, Lord, for the small blessings uh, and for the large blessings. And namely, um, I'm thinking of the additional um, the addition to the family of a of a dear rabbi friend of mine who's listening in right now. Um, Lord, we thank you for that healthy baby boy that was born to their family just so uh, short while ago. We pray that he will grow in the strength and admonition of the Lord and that he would be a mighty leader uh, 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 for uh, the people around him, the people that he would meet. So um, be with us tonight, and we'll be careful, Lord, to give you the praise and the glory of Yeshua. Amen. 
I thank you once again for joining me week after week. My name is Ariel Lyman Hanavi. I'm a Torah teacher at Congregation The Harvest, which is Kehilatunuba in Thornton, Colorado. You can find us online at graftedin.com. And we are still meeting in person, despite the um, news that you see and read about and hear about when you turn on your radio and your TV and go to the internet about rises in COVID infections and the Delta variant and all that other uh, scary nonsense. Um we're still meeting, um, but if you can't meet us in person, uh, well, we hope that you can join us online at graftedin.com. Mark is continuing through his services the, that we do um, stream and upload to the uh, YouTube channel. Bringing Hope to a Hopeless World is the name of the service that he just uh, lately recorded, so I hope, hope you can catch that on our uh, website there. Speaking of websites, I've got my own internet website resource as well at tetzetora.com. That's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. I'd be delighted if you um, visit my website and um, just take a look at all the resources. Become a newsletter subscriber uh, so that you can be in the loop and know when I'm um, uploading new content um, and sharing things. Uh, I'm pretty busy on my newsletter. In fact, if you do subscribe, you're probably going to get something just about every day uh, since I'm busy uploading things to my YouTube channel and things like that. Speaking of YouTube channels, you can find me on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash C forward slash Tetze Torah Ministries, all one word spelled out there. And, um, you know, love to have you jump over in and take a look at that resource. Uh, I'm quite busy there. Lots of uh, videos that I upload, something going on every day um, there. So about every day. Uh, yeah, I think it is daily that I do uploads there. So um, if you do visit my YouTube channel, make sure you do these five things for me, okay? Let me rattle them off real quick. Number one, subscribe and join the family. Number two, hit the bell for notifications so that you know when I'm uploading new content. Number three, hit the thumbs up to tell me that you like the content and, and um, it really helps my uh, YouTube al algorithm there. Helps me get sorted a little higher on the list there. Um, number four, uh, leave me comments. Let me know what you like, what you don't like, what you're challenged by. Um, let me know what you'd like to see on my channel, and I'll see what I can do about that. Um, and then number five, hit the little arrow that lets you share the content with your other friends and family members in your social circle, media circles. And uh, that's just the best way to, for everybody to be involved, okay? Alrighty. These are the live internet studies brought to you week after week. Let me give you some logistics before we jump into the study. It is episode number 151 tonight that we're engaged in. The meeting date for tonight is August 14, 2021. That's the USA date. The meeting day is Saturday afternoon, 4 p.m. to approximately 5 p.m. Central Standard Time. We go for about an hour. Sometimes we go over. We usually do go over. We meet for uh, an hour, but it's broken up into two 30-minute segments. And as usual, since it's kind of a series, um, the first 30-minute segment is Romans 14 Unplugged, Feast and Fast and Food, Oh My, Part 67. And we're finally talking about the food part in that Feast and Fast and Food part of my title. Uh, we've been talking about some of the technical issues behind the terminology that's used in the first century to describe food that the Bible says is permissible and food that would be off the permittable eat uh, list to eat. Uh, and then also, we're learning that there's another technical term that was being used in the first century to describe food that otherwise God would say was okay, but 
it had questionable um, origins. Maybe it was um, sold in a pagan meat market, or maybe it was used in an idolatrous service prior to being sold in the meat market, or uh, you weren't sure how many people handled that that particular choice cut of meat. And so there's another technical word that was used by the Judaisms, or uh, the Hebrew speakers and the Greek speakers, and we're finding how this bears relevance for a better understanding of Paul's explanation in Romans 14, particularly when we get down halfway through the chapter, Paul says, I am persuaded by the Lord Yeshua that nothing is unclean in of itself, but if someone thinks it's unclean, well, then to him it's unclean. I'm kind of paraphrasing there. And we're challenged with this 21st century notion of, was Paul saying that nothing is unclean, meaning the Leviticus 11 list and Deuteronomy 14 list of kosher food, has that all been changed? Did God change his mind when it comes to food? That's the discussion. We hope you can stick around for that. Sec uh, segment two tonight for 30 minutes is given over to exploring the Shema. Discussions on the issues of Trinity were in paper two. We're wrapping up with some review, Yahweh and Yeshua part 84. And we're just um, ready to look at paper three where we talk about who or what is the Holy Spirit. But before we go there, we're just doing a review of where we've come so far. And tonight we're wrapping up... Um, Maybe I can bring it to a close tonight where we're talking about uh, Dr. Bo Branson's view of history um, when it comes to understanding Trinity versus other models of how to understand God, particularly this uh, model known as monarchical Trinitarianism and how it's important for us uh, as Trinitarian uh, believers. The featured YouTube video tonight is from my short question, short, uh, short question, short answer live series, and it's entitled, Was the Holy Spirit? Spirit with the people of the Old Testament, as we're kind of, again, getting poised and oriented to be talking about the Holy Spirit uh, in our uh, Trinity study uh, shortly. If you'd like to join us for the live Skype studies, it's really easy. Go to my website at tatesatora.com, and on the very top, there's a uh, kind of a yellow banner that says Live Internet Studies. If you click that, You'll be brought to the page that you're looking at right now uh, on the screen. And if you scroll about halfway down through the screen, there's a big blue Skype banner. You can't miss it. If you click that, it'll open up your uh, either Skype on your computer or even if you don't have Skype, it'll, it'll launch it in the browser. You can join as a guest. You don't really need Skype or an account to join. Um, we'd love to have you join us each week, uh, Saturday afternoons from 4 p.m. to 5 p.m. Central Standard Time. So that's the easiest way to join Skype. And as I always mention, if you do go to my website, do one last favor for me. Scroll to the very bottom to that black footer section where you can see some Hebrew writing where it says, Ki mitzion te Torah. And look at that little yellow donate button and prayerfully consider if you want to um, help support me uh, and my ministry. This is the way you can do so. Um, I'm in a place where I could really use the help. And if God's laying on your heart to bless me and financially, then this is the way to do it. And as I always mention, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. Let's jump into the Romans study of uh, Romans 14 and uh, Feast and Fast and Food, oh my. Let me bump that font up nice and big and go right there. And we're continuing through this question of uh, looking at Romans 14 verses 14 through 18. The question is, what exactly does nothing is unclean in itself imply? Paul coined those words, right? Nothing is unclean in and of itself. We're going to read it here in a second. Did he mean that the dietary list has been relaxed? 
Let's read the verses real quick. I'll read the English on the left, ESV. I'll read the corresponding SBLGNT version of the Greek over on the right. Uh, just these five verses, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. And then we'll jump down into the study and continue through some of these technical issues. Hopefully it won't be too confusing for you if you're following along with me. Um, I think it'll make sense. I'll try to make it as plain as possible. All right, let's read uh, verse 14 first. Let's read, I think I'll read... Um, I'll read English, Hebrew, uh, English, Greek, English, Greek. We'll go like that. Um, on the left side, Paul says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. And again, we're asking this question as, a, as Torah keepers, as people who want to be obedient to the law of Moses and yet faithful to the Messiah found therein. Did Jesus relax the dietary issues? And if he did, is that how Paul is explaining it to us and how we're supposed to govern our lives today? If he did, well then, case closed. Very easy. Um, Jesus claimed that nothing's unclean of itself. Therefore, um, we really just need to worry about how we treat our fellow brother and how it impacts the, our, our people in our community. Um, because some people still have an opinion whether it's unclean. And if they think it's unclean, then it's unclean to them. And we don't want to offend people with our own personal preferences. And so that seems to be the preferred way to handle this particular passage in most of today's Messianic and Christian circles, particularly mostly Christian, but many Messianic circles, you'd be surprised, also uh, feel that, you know, yeah, everything really is, is clean. Uh, so, uh, but, you know, there are people who feel it's unclean, so we just have to, you know, be careful about how we uh, operate. Um, but I think there's a better way to understand this passage, and that's really what we're talking about. And it's helpful to look at the Greek at what these particular words um, convey. Let me look at that real quick. Over on the right side of the page, SBLGNT is Society of Biblical Literature's Greek New Testament version. And the Greek says, Oida kai pepesmai in kurio yesu, hati udin koinon di kiautu, e me to lagidzameno, ti koinon enai ekeno koinon. And the word that I want you to latch on to is, in the English, it's unclean. It's used three times in this verse. Unclean, unclean, unclean. And in the Greek, it shows up as koinon, koinon, koinon. We're going to talk a little bit more about that word tonight, koinon. What does that mean? But let's keep reading first. Verse uh, 15 right there. Paul says, for if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So, no matter how you slice and dice the passage, pun intended, at the end of the day, what matters most is fellowship with one another and, and the way that um, God understands that fellowship to be held together by the love that you have for one another uh, as first and foremost um, Messianic brothers and sisters, but this would extend, your love would extend, I understand it, even to the unbelievers in the congregation. Just because, I mean, because the verse says, those for whom Christ died. Well, who did Christ die for? Well, on a generic sense, Christ died for the entire world. In the general sense, right, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? So God did love the world. He sent his son to die. But there's a, a smaller, concentrated, kind of specific sense in which Messiah died for the elect. So we could play that either way, but without getting too confusing, the point I'm trying to bring up is, Food is important, 
but it's not the most important thing. And we're going to find that um, later on, Paul's going to talk about the kingdom of God. It's not about eating and drinking, you know, but righteousness, enjoying the Holy Spirit, and things like that. So let's get our priorities straight when it comes to, um, you know, expressing our preferences about what we eat, what we think is kosher, what is not kosher, what's clean and unclean, etc. And make sure we understand that love takes priority. Love is the, the, the higher priority there when it comes to uh, table fellowship. Um, uh, the Greek over on the right side of the page says, E garodia bromaha delfasu lupetai uketi kata agapain perapates meto bromati su ekenon apalue huper hu Christas apethanen. Verse 16. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. Maybe you're enjoying the fact that now that you're part of a Messianic congregation, you've learned how to keep kosher and that you've learned how to walk according to the festivals and keep Sabbaths and, and all those things, and yet you're going to go around and slander your brother because he still keeps eating um, ham sandwiches and shrimp cocktail. Well, that's not a good thing. It might be a good thing for you, but that's certainly not a good thing in the eyes of God. So don't let something that you consider as good be spoken of as evil, your freedom to whether eat or not eat. Well, maybe in Paul's day, this refers to Gentiles who are suddenly enjoying the freedom of being able to uh, worship God as former pagans, but now being counted as righteous by God. They're, they enjoy a certain place within the Jewish synagogue and the Jewish communities because now they've been brought into genuine covenant and fellowship with God through their faith in Messiah Yeshua. And when it comes to food, they no longer have to worry about their conscience about um, you know food that was offered to idols and the you know whether or not it's questionable. They're now in a place where they understand by the power of the Holy Spirit that really the idols are nothing. They have no power over them. They are nothing, and yet this gives them the freedom to be able to shop in the um, pagan marketplaces with freedom. With, um, without having to worry, okay, where was this meat used before it ended up in the, the, the supermarket? Um, you know, that's a freedom that they didn't have before. So that's a good thing. And so Paul's going to challenge them. Do not let what you regard as good to be spoken of as evil. How could this be turned into evil? Well, if again, we're using our food preferences as a club over people's head to make them fall in line with what we think they should or should not be eating. If we're using our food as a weapon against other brothers in our um, faith community, well, then what we think is good suddenly turns into a bad thing. And Paul's going to challenge us there. The Greek says, may blasphemes, though. You know, don't blaspheme. You can hear it there in the Greek, blasphemes though, un humonto agathon. Verse uh, 17, Paul continues, For, and I mentioned this earlier, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, as important as table fellowship was in the first century, and as important as it is today. Nevertheless, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. I like to remind myself of this example I heard from another rabbi, a messianic rabbi. No matter, uh, um, uh, no matter how choice that 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 piece of steak is, and you're trying to keep kosher, you're trying to be biblically uh, uh, kosher, uh, and some of us are trying to be rabbinically kosher as well. And no matter how good that choice of choice cut of steak is, when you go to buy it and you go to eat it, it's going to look pretty bad when uh, when it's time for that 
food to leave your body. And so it kind of puts everything into perspective, kind of like what Yeshua said in, in Mark chapter 7 about um, it's not what goes into a body that defiles you, but it's what comes out. At a natural level, all food goes in great, but comes out looking really bad, right? And smelling really bad, right? Uh, it, it, it's all defiled on its way out. And yet Yeshua used that example to explain a deeper spiritual truth. It's not really what goes into our ears and into our eyes um, so much that defiles us or goes into our mouth, but it's what comes out that defiles us, right? The slander and the gossip and the, the murderous uh, speech, um, the Lashon Hara, um, all of that starts from a heart that has been defiled by our improper thought life and our improper um, of, um internalization of the people and things around us and that's really going to defile us um yes i think that yeshua uh was saying that in that sense that um it doesn't matter if you eat with unwashed hands and you know the greater context of that passage no i don't think he was declaring all foods clean like it says in in some of your popular english bibles um Yeshua's understanding of food is going to match Paul's understanding of food or vice versa Paul being the student Yeshua being the master and both of them are going to uphold what Moses taught in Leviticus and we'll look at that tonight the Greek of verse 17 let me read it for you real quick says ugar estin e he basileia to theubrosis kaiposis ala dekausune kai erene kai chara in pneumatihagio and then the final posik, the final verse in the set, verse 18, that we're going to be looking at eventually. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. And within the context, Paul's talking about how we conduct ourselves uh, in, in light of our, our food choices and our table fellowship behavior. Whoever thus serves Christ. So, so at the end, you might think you're all high and mighty because you're keeping kosher, right? You think you're all that in a bag of chips, pun intended. And yet, if you're slandering your brother over your brother's food choices, if you're looking down on your fellow um, congregant because he doesn't quite yet understand the kosher dietary issues, or within Paul's day would have had Jews and Gentiles kind of, you know, looking, turning, looking down their nose at each other because one keeps one dietary list and one keeps a different, or one keeps um, one has a certain fast day and the other doesn't, um, things like that, then doesn't really matter how well you think you're keeping kosher if you don't have that love for your community member your fellow brother the way that you're supposed to well then you're not serving messiah paul puts the example right back in our face whoever thus serves christ is acceptable to god it's interesting that he turns it full circle and says that the way that we conduct uh, our um um preferences with one another, the way we serve one another in the community is directly um, um, interpreted by God as serving Christ, whoever thus serves Christ. I mean, if you look at it, he's talking about our relationships uh, with one another, right? Uh, if your brother's grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love, you destroy the one for whom Christ died, don't let what you regard as good to be spoken of as evil. Um, but yet he interprets that in the end as serving Christ. And that's really what it's about. 
in our conduct for one another. This is the bigger message in Romans 14. No matter how you interpret the passage of, as to what's clean, what's unclean, what's acceptable, what's not, um, what you're going to put in your mouth, and what's not, at the end of the day, you have to remember that the way you serve one another is a direct reflection of, from God's perspective, how you're serving his son, Messiah. And um, Paul's going to carry that example a little bit further and remind us that Messiah, in chapter 15, Messiah didn't push his own view. He demonstrated service to the Jewish people, to Israel, as a servant, and in this way he left the example for the Gentiles to follow in, to also not only serve Israel, but to serve one another in this great uh, faith community that we all belong to. Let's read verse 18 in the Greek. Over on the right side of the page, it says, Ha gara in tuto duluon to Christo urestas to theokai dakimas tois anthropois. And that'll do it for the liturgy and the, the Bible reading. Let's jump back down into um, the study. We are using an example from Acts chapter 10. Specifically, a few verses where Peter's talking about in this dialogue with God. Remember, in the example, God gives this vision to Peter and lowers a sheet with all these manner of animals. And in the vision, God tells Peter, rise, kill, eat, right? And Peter looks at the sheet, and there's all manner of animals. So Peter, being a, a, a Jew, has been raised to understand that some animals are permissible for food, and others are prohibited, he, right? Peter knows Acts chap- Peter knows um, Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14, as we should as well. And so when Peter is told to rise, kill, and eat, Peter has a, has a problem. He actually uh, argues with the voice, the bot coal that's speaking to him, the voice from heaven. He says, not so, Lord. All right, and we read it here in verse 14 of Acts 10. Not so, Lord, for I've never eaten anything, listen to this, common or unclean. I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And for our study, as it's linked back to Romans, is this idea of the two qualifying adjectives that Peter supplies in the text, common and unclean. And so we ask the question, why does Kepha make a dual distinction of common and or unclean foods in verse 14, rendered from the KJV? What do these words convey in their original languages? And what we learned as I'm scrolling down through some of this, uh, we've, we've read all this uh, uh, last week, we learned that the um, uh, the two Greek words that Paul uses, I'm sorry, that Peter uses, refer to, when he says common, he's referring to a Greek word that implies something that's otherwise permissible by God. God says, thumbs up, green light, you can eat it. I say it's okay, it's okay. But because of the questionable origins of that particular animal as it turned into food, such as say, you know, we could use the example of chicken. Chicken is permissible, right? It's a kosher animal. And even though it's not mentioned in Leviticus 11, but it's not described as one of the, as the prohibited birds on the list. So thus, by logical deduction, we infer that chicken is permissible. And so we've got a chicken in the first century that Peter would encounter in the supermarket. And he thinks to himself, Leviticus 11 gives it the green light, thumbs up, must be okay, I can eat it. But if that chicken was found in a pagan market, right, not a kosher diet, uh, kosher dairy, but maybe it's found in a, in a pagan, uh, um, da- uh, I said dairy, a, 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 a market or a, a, a um, 
Oh, I'm losing my English here. What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, a deli. Deli. I said dairy. Deli. A kosher deli. Um, so this piece of chicken is found in a non-kosher deli. So a religious Jew might have questions. Well, was this chicken when it was live? Was it used in a pagan ceremony? Right? Did you know? Did did pagans use it? to you know, cut its throat and drain out the blood and offer up some libation up to their pagan god, and then they um, turn around and are selling this meat in the marketplace. You know, Those types of issues would turn an otherwise permissible piece of chicken into what we would call in Greek koinos, common. The Greek word refers to being handled by everyone. So when we looked at this Greek word, Strong's number, here we go, Strong's number, uh, 2839, like you can see on my screen, koinos is, is the adjective that's rendered as um, common, shared, Hebraic, you, Hebraist use, profane, dirty, unclean, unwashed. So um, anything that's common is something that has lost its specialness, its holiness, its set-apartness, it's what's mundane, it's stripping it of its sacredness. So uh, this is the word that Paul, uh, Peter said when he said, it's, it's uh, I've never done anything common. By the way, it's also the same word that Paul used in Romans 14 um, when he said, uh, nothing is unclean in and of itself. I don't want to turn to it just there because I'll lose my bookmark. Um, so nothing is unclean of itself. And I've learned this from the Lord Yeshua. The word unclean in the English Bible is actually koinos in the Greek. And in case you're not catching it, in many English Bibles, here's where the challenge comes. In Acts 10.14, when Peter says, I've never eaten anything common or unclean, the word common there is the Greek word koinos, but that same Greek word koinos in Acts 10.14 is rendered by... Um, the KJV as unclean in Romans 10:14 or Romans 14:14. So, are you understanding that the little the challenge that we have? One English Bible, like for instance, I'm picking on the King James version. One English Bible in one passage, it has for the Greek koinos, same Greek word. It has the English common, but in a different passage, it has the English word unclean. But yet, in the first passage in Acts, Peter says, I've never anything common or unclean. This would lead us to believe, just re looking at the English translation, almost like Peter was using the same Greek word twice, because he says common or unclean. But this is where the confusion creeps in. Peter actually didn't use the same Greek word twice. He didn't say, Lord, I've never anything koinos or koinos. Instead, what we find is that he used a second Greek word when he's using the English unclean. And that's the Greek word that we looked at uh, extensively last week. And it's this word akathertos. So let me just show you here in the Greek. In Acts 10.13, he says, Hade petros apen medamos, kurie hati udapate ephagon, pan koinon kai akatherton. And if you can see right here, koinon is the Greek for common in the English, Kai is the word and, and then a katharton is the English is the Greek for the English unclean. So when we looked at this Greek word a katharton more closely, it's Strong's number one sixty nine. The root word is um, akathertos, and it's an adjective just like the other word koinos, and it's rendered unclean or impure. And if we look at the word help studies a little farther down, it's 
uh, it's a word that talks about um, not pure because it's mixed, um, it's unclean, hence uh, tainted by sin or something like that. So the point I'm trying to bring up without getting too confusing is this. When you read through your English Bibles and you encounter the word unclean, you should do yourself a favor and look that word up if possible. Pull out your Strong's Concordance or go online or something like that. Find a Bible tool and see if the word is one of these two words. Is it the Greek word koinos or is it the Greek word akathertos? And here's why I think um, it matters for our discussion tonight. If you look at the context of the way these words are used in the Bible, quite often, and you have to use the you have to use a resource known as the um, LXX, otherwise the uh, the Septuagint, which is the Greek rendering of the Old Testament. This really makes a difference. If you pull up a resource like the one I've got on my screen right now, let me see if I can blow that up a little bit. Yeah, I can. Um, God tells Moses to tell the people of Israel, "I want you." to make a difference between the unclean and the clean, speaking of animals that you can eat. And in the original Hebrew, it would be right there. Lahavdil ben ha-tahor uven ha... I'm sorry, let's try that again. Lahavdil ben ha-tamei uven ha-tahor. And the word unclean in the English is this word right here in, in the Hebrew. Ha-tamei, really it's that right there. Uh, the ha is the word the. So, tame is the Hebrew counterpart. But we're really interested in is what is the Greek. And so, if I pull up the Greek right there, uh, which is a Greek rendering of the original Hebrew, that's what the Septuagint provides for us. The Greek says, diastelai ana mesonton um, akatharton kai ana mesonton katharon. And the word I'm really interested in is right there. Akathartone, right? Akathartone, I'm sorry, akathartone. And um, akathartone, I'm getting the stress in the wrong spot. Akathartone is the same word that we looked at earlier. Akathartos is the root word. If I were to click on it, it would turn me to this particular tool, uh, which, which shows this uh, akathartos is the root word. So why does this matter to us? Let me break it down for you and make it easy. Why this matters is because if you look at the context of the way this, these two Greek words were rendered in the LXX and then carried over into the Greek rendering of our New Testament, we find that the context, there's a little bit of overlap, but not much. The context of how the words are used in any particular setting by any individual, any individual is this. The word koinos is a word that's used in the context to describe something that a man declares as uh, handled by everybody. It's common, um, it's profane, it's defiled because it's been handled by too many people, and therefore um, I have my questions about it. So it's a man's choice. He declares this thing, this food, this animal, as common. Again, sometimes your translation says unclean, but I think that's a poor translation. So that's one definition that we're working from. The other word, akathertos, that we're looking at here is generally reserved for something that the Bible, i.e. God declares as unclean. Not common, but definitely unclean. A very stronger definition, stronger adjective. So if you had to juggle these two words in your hands, 
the akathertos is going to be the stronger it's the word you want to you want to choose unclean you want to understand that the bible is the one that authoritatively says this is unclean uh in um in the uh leviticus passage it's the word that god told moses from the hebrew that got carried over into the greek these animals are um akathartone they are unclean to you make this distinction god didn't say they are common to you he didn't say they're koinos he said they're akathartone right akathartone akathartone so this is a stronger usage word so that's really the best way in my understanding to um juggle these two words so coming full circle how does this bear relevance for her sorry how does it bear relevance to our roman study paul says i am convinced that nothing is common in and of itself he doesn't say nothing is unclean in of itself he says nothing is common in of itself what does that mean that means man can make a declaration about certain foods but god's definition doesn't change it's not open for discussion God set the rules and laid them down authoritatively in his word. And no man has the right to come along and change that rule. Understand what I'm saying here? So if God says it is a cathartos, it's unclean, then man can't come along and says, no, it's clean. He can come along and say that it's common, it's it's handled by too many people, and therefore it's 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 um it's defiled and i don't want to eat it right think of this example you go to the store you buy a, a brand new shiny apple and it's 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 you presume it's been washed and if it's not you take it home and you wash it and so you're holding this washed apple in your hand and by all accounts the apple is permissible to eat nothing wrong with it right but before you take a bite your little brother runs into you bumps you the apple falls out of your hand it rolls across the dirty floor Right? Remember, it's still wet because you just washed it. Rolls across the dirty floor. Let's let's continue the, the analogy. It even rolls out the door and onto the, the dirt ground, right? Question. Are you going to pick that apple up and bite into it? Most of you are going to say no. Why? Because the apple has become common. It's become defiled by the dirt, right? What you need to do is you simply need to wash it again. That's the remedy. But before you wash it, the apple has been rendered in a state where you don't want to eat it. It's otherwise permissible food, but because of its contact with something that is, in your mind, not food, i.e. the dirt on the floor or the dirt on the ground, then you're not going to bite into it. Most of us won't. Some some of you might out there. I imagine some of you probably still eat that thing. But most of us are going to probably wash that thing again, right? So the example is given to understand that in the first century, otherwise permissible food like the chicken that I was describing earlier, God says it's okay. Thumbs up, green light. But because of its um, questionable origins, either a pagan deli or supermarket, or um, it was food offered to idols and you know it or something like that, well then you've decided to render it common, koinos. Paul is trying to explain to his readership in Romans 14, nothing is really common in and of itself. The food is either a, a permissible or prohibited from God's perspective. But if it's permissible, then from God's perspective, it's okay. <clears throat> in and of itself, it should be fine. It's only 
your own personal preference whether or not you decide well i think that's got a questionable source you know i don't know if it's if it's was sold from the the right deli or a supermarket something like that so you're going to come along and and declare it whether it's uh common or not so and that's the uh, point of contention and the point I'm trying to make is that Paul is not trying to say that that um, God changed his mind. Let's see how this plays out uh, in my uh, commentary. Um, I think we left off right here. Yeah. So um, what I said is my commentary is, and so after disambiguating the technicalities behind the Greek terms clean and unclean, from a first century Jewish perspective, we will pleasantly discover that the remaining verses of the section are actually self-explanatory. And so what we did is we basically, when I say disambiguated, we took the original English word, which is rendered two different, we, I'm sorry, we took the original Greek word, which is rendered two different ways in the same Bible. That's why it's ambiguous, right? I'm just picking on KJV, but this happens in other Bibles as well. You have, in one passage, I'm picking on Acts 10.14, we have a Greek word koinos, which is rendered as common by Peter, but the same Greek word koinos is rendered by uh, Paul in the English as unclean. And yet, Peter already used that English word unclean when he's talking about akathertos, and yet Paul's not even using the word akathertos at all. So um, it, that's where there's a little bit of ambiguity. In the, so we disambiguated that. We picked that thing apart to try and get some sense of what the original writers... Remember, when they were reading through the letters that we have today in our English, they weren't reading English. So they would not have had the, some of the confusion that I think we have today as English speakers when we encounter these particular words. They, you know, when they read... Um, Peter, uh, in Luke, Luke's account of Acts chapter 10, uh, they would have read the original Greek, you know, koinos, and, um, and they wouldn't have thought, oh, this is a word that we've already heard about in Leviticus 11. Because guess what? Koinos doesn't show up in Leviticus 11. So they don't, they, their mind wouldn't have been taken to food that was either permissible or not permissible when he used the word koinos. But when he used the second word, when he said akathertos, then they would have thought about Leviticus chapter 11. So there would have been that easy designation or difference between those two two words there in the Greek. Likewise, when Paul says, I've, I've, not, uh, I've learned from Yeshua that nothing is unclean of itself, Paul didn't use the word akathertos. So they don't have any reason to think that Paul is making some reference to Leviticus 11's food list or Deuteronomy 14. Instead, because Paul chose the Greek word koinos, which is should be is better rendered as common rather than unclean, well, they would have been uh, instantly reminded of the second technical term that Jewish people were already using, Greek-speaking Jews, in Paul's day to refer to food that was otherwise permissible but had been declared by a man as unfit. So based on that, we can see these other verses, and I'll close with this tonight. Verse 15, For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. We can put the context back together and realize that it's not a discussion about what is kosher from God's perspective versus what is not kosher. Paul is not saying that Jesus taught me that the dietary list in Leviticus 11 has been relaxed. Yeshua the Messiah didn't come to up to do away with the law, right? We learned that in, in uh, Matthew chapter uh, uh, 5, starting in verse 17 and going down to verse 20. We also learn it in this very letter. Paul tells us in Romans 3 
uh, around the end of the chapter, do we do do we null do we make void the law through faith? God forbid we establish the law. Uh, he goes on to talk about in chapter seven that with his um, with his mind he he obeys the law of God. Right? He's 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 bound to the law of God. So I don't think it's the best explanation or interpretation of Paul's letter to say um, the dietary list has been relaxed. But regardless, regardless of how you interpret the passage, if you're keeping kosher according to God's laws, or if you're just keeping kosher according to the best of your ability, or, or whatever food preferences you're walking in, the greater uh, picture here, the greater message that Paul wants you to walk away with is, how are you treating your brother in, in light of the food preferences that you've come to understand? And your treatment of your brother is going to be the bigger issue there. If your brother is grieved by what you eat, then you're turning your food into a weapon. So we're not Torah terrorists. We don't bash people over the head because they're not keeping kosher or whatnot or because they're not fasting. That's not the proper way to uh, uh, to wield the truths that we've come to understand from God's words. Paul says it very plainly, do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For, in verse 17, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's the primary message that we have to walk away with. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. And that is the central message that we've got to get our um, hearts and minds decided on. As, as I close uh, this section about food, we'll talk a little bit more next week, uh, kind of some follow-up, some some um, conclusionary type topic uh, talking, even though there's nothing in the, my commentary that talks about food at this point right here. Uh, you know, my commentary tells us that we need to move on to the next verse. But in conclusion, we'll entertain this question next week. Are the uh, list, the foods in the uh, Leviticus still relevant for us today? What's kosher? What's not kosher? Does God still care about whether we still keep clean? Um, what about Acts chapter 10, the, the message there? You know, God says, don't, don't call unclean what I've cleansed. Uh, we'll look at that. We'll close that uh, uh, loop in that particular example next week. And we'll just ask some questions. Maybe I'll even open it up, open up the microphone to the live students in the class and ask them, what do you think about what's kosher and what's not kosher? Do you try to keep kosher? If you don't, what's the big deal? You know, what is the big deal? If you eat a ham sandwich today, what's God going to do to you? Is he going to strike you dead? Right? Is he going to make you get sick? So we can, we'll have some of those discussions next week. But that'll do it for Romans 14 Unplugged, Feast and Fast and Food. Oh my. Let's turn to exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity, and we'll pick up the discussion where we left off last week. We're talking about Dr. Bo Branson's monarchical Trinitarianism, not to be confused with modalistic monarchianism. Remember, I put up a slide in the, in the um, teaching last week. Those of you who are in live class, you didn't see it. You have to actually go to the YouTube video to watch it. But um, uh, modalistic monarchianism is a first century heresy. It's a form of modalism. It's that teaching that believes that God does not um, does not identify as three persons, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Modalism believes that God identifies as a single being, and He simply um, uh, interacts with mankind using kind of avatars or masks or personas uh, or something to that effect, and so or modes, uh, emanations. 
to use kind of modern uh, Hebrew uh, thinking way of about it. So instead of there being a God, one being with who expresses himself as three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, modalism, monarchical, uh, mono, uh, uh, modalistic monarchianism teaches that um, God is the only soul being, and there are no Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Really, it's just this this being knows God, and when he chooses to reveal himself or interact with uh, humans as this father mask, you know, like an actor putting on a mask, or, you know, think like, um, uh, you know, all these movies where the, the person puts on a different mask to show themselves to be something different. Uh, that's what God's doing. He's swapping out a mask called the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But really, the person behind the mask is always this being known as God. That's modalism. By comparison, we Orthodox Trinitarians, Orthodox with a small o Orthodox, we believe that the Bible teaches that God, in fact, is complex and he's mysterious and he does reveal himself as three persons it's one god but yet the three persons are unique and distinct and so we believe that uh, modalistic monarchianism is heretical by comparison monarchical trinitarianism they sound similar monarchical trinitarianism they both have that similar monarch word in there modalistic monarchianism and monarchical trinitarianism monarchical trinitarianism seems to be accurate so let's let dr um branson clarify what he means and we'll probably finish this uh tonight let me see how far do i want to go with the quote uh yeah i think we can go all the way down through it let me read all of this let me see if I can read it and then go back and explain it, or something like that. Clarifying his understanding of the importance of the monarchical Trinitarianism view, here's what uh, Dr. Branson says. This is a doctrine that was accepted, as far as I can tell, this Dr. Branson speaking, by literally all of the 4th century church fathers who lie at the source of the, quote, official, unquote, formulation of the doctrine of the Trinity, a doctrine which later became one of the chief causes of the Great Schism. If you remember, the Great Schism is the split between the church in the East and the church in the West over some of the issues related to, for instance, the origin of the Holy Spirit. Did it proceed from the Father or did it proceed from the fun, uh, from the Son? We call this the uh, filioque way um, uh, division, the filioque way uh, d- uh, division schism, things like that. Um, And so that was one of the causes of the Great Schism and a doctrine which continues to be a source of division between Catholic and Orthodox theology to this day. So um, uh, Trinity is also something you would think it would unite us, but there are still areas of trying to understand God that are deeply divisive, deeply divisive, um, deeply divide us uh, one way or the other. Trinity is one of those issues. Whether you're a Trinitarian or a Unitarian, remember, um, we're contrasting the Trinitarian models of God, you know, Trinitarian theories, with the non-Trinitarian theories or those that should not be counted as Trinity. Modalism is a, is a Trinity model that decides that um, God is one and the three masks are the way that he interacts with humans. It's a Trinity model, but it's not one that Orthodox Trinitarians 
um, espouse to, such as myself. So we recognize that it's 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 a it's a discussion on the issue of Trinity, but it in the end it's not a model of Trinity that I that I would um, champion. It's it's one that I reject. Likewise, Arianism, which teaches that um, Jesus the Son is not divine, right? He's fully human and he's a creature. He's created by God. It's one of God's first creations, and he's the the um, tool that God used to create the rest of the world, the Logos or something like that, the Word made flesh. Um, it is a Trinity model, but it is not a form of Trinity that I espouse to. Arianism is that form of Trinity that is um, taught by modern-day Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. It's taught by modern-day um, uh, many modern-day uh, Unitarians. It's taught by many. Um, it's believed by um, Christadelphians and um, Iglesia Ni Cristo and. Um, what are some of the other pseudo-Christian groups that I can think of off the top of my head? Um, just some of those that, that I've mentioned. Um, some uh, uh, Worldwide Church of God, I believe, uh, believes in some of this. And modern uh, Oneness Pentecostals, some of those forms hold to a form of either Arianism or modalism, something that reduces one of the persons of God to either a creature or reduces God to uh, a single being that uh, has no uh, personhood to him, something like that. So Arianism, modalism, uh, Patripassianism, or uh, Sabellianism, or uh, some of these other isms that are not Trinitarianism. So that's kind of where Dr. Branson's alerting us to. It is also, speaking of the Trinity, a doctrine which has, I'm sorry, speaking of um, a monarchical um, monarchical uh, Trinitarianism, which is a form of Trinitarianism that explains, and he's going to explain it himself, that focuses on the monarchy of the Father. This particular doctrine has also received almost no attention in analytic theology. And of course, analytic theology is that form of theology that really seeks to stay logical to the terms and um, understand God uh, in its most natural, unambiguous way. Remember, our resident um, analytic theologian that we've been using as our example in my study here has been Dr. Dale Tuggy. He himself being a Unitarian, a biblical Unitarian, meaning he does believe in Jesus and he does believe in the Holy Spirit. And he's Christian, as far as I can tell. I have no doubt that um, he has a sincere love for God and for Messiah. Uh, when I listen to him speak, um, I can I can hear his passion for the truth of Scripture. Yet he believes that Jesus is the Messiah. Yet he's a creature. He was created by God. God created Jesus. Um, he's not eternal. He's not the eternal Son of God. He's not God with a capital G O D. And so he's an analytic theologian. He believes that the Bible doesn't teach that Jesus is God. Well. Dr. Um, Branson disagrees. Dr. Branson believes that the Bible does teach that Jesus is God. And the way we can put those two together is that God's fatherhood is eternal. And using that logic, if, if God the Father is an eternal God and he's an eternal father, then his fatherhood is eternal. That means eternally he must have a son and have had a son. Thus, in the logical sequence there, the Son is also eternal. He's just as eternal as the Eternal Father. That is modalistic monarchianism. He goes on to say, more precisely, however, I should say that it is a certain very strong interpretation of the doctrine of the monarchy of the Father, an interpretation which suggests in some ways a... Scroll up a bit there. 
a fresh alternative to the standard approaches of social Trinitarianism and relative identity Trinitarianism. He goes on to talk about an approach that he's going to label monarchical Trinitarianism, his own words, MT. And he says that we might briefly describe MT by way of contrast to ST and RI, perhaps a bit simplistically, but still useful as follows. And so let me just um, help you out a little bit here. Very briefly, without getting too technical again, um, relative identity, let me back up, there we go. Social Trinitarianism is a form of Trinitarianism that focuses on the threeness of God, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It's the, it's the type of Trinitarianism that's um, the, uh, more or less taught in the Western Church and Roman Catholicism. It's also referred to as Latin Trinitarianism by other terminology. It's social Trinitarianism, if I remember. So ST, a, a Trinitarianism that... Um, brings in the, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and focuses on the social interaction between those three persons. Um, not to the exclusion of the one God, but sometimes it runs the risk of of kind of um, um, uh, downplaying the oneness of God so that we almost have three gods, right? It runs the risk of being mistaken as a form of tritheism, social Trinitarianism. By comparison, relative identity Trinitarianism, RI, is a type of Trinitarianism that is more prevalent in the church in the East. The Greek Orthodox churches are going to probably fall into this camp, relative identity Trinitarianism, or RI, that focuses more on the oneness of God and um, the identity of the one being, and it downplays the, the, the interaction between the three persons. So it runs the risk of being misunderstood as a form of modalism, uh, even though both of these are forms of Trinitarianism. What Dr. Bo Branson favors is the approach that he labels monarchical Trinitarianism, MT, in contrast to the ST and the RI. MT is his description. Let me just give it to you. He uses these three bullet points. He says... In social Trinitarianism, it says that the one God is all of the divine persons taken together. So when we're looking at Trinity as a model in the social Trinitarianism, we take Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and we look at all three of them as the divine persons taken together. That's social Trinitarianism. And when we ask who or what is God, we point to all three. Well, all three are God. What is God or who is God? Well, he's all three. That's more or less the, the STR social Trinitarianism um, emphasis. When we look at, by comparison, RI, or relative identity Trinitarianism, RI says that the one God is each of the divine persons taken individually. So, um, who or what is God? Well, he's, he's Father, He's Son, He's Holy Spirit, but individually, not necessarily Trinity, not the one God being all three of them lumped together. Um, although we understand there's some uh, interworking definition between the three, but one God is each of the divine persons taken individually rather than taken together. So it's kind of a different spin on Trinity, but it's still a definition that Dr. Branson is a little bit uncomfortable with the end of, at the end of the day. And so he labels his own proprietary terminology, I think he made this up, MT, or monarchical Trinitarianism. He says that this version of Trinity says that the one God is one of the divine persons, namely the Father. And that's why we call it the monarchy of the Father. He believes this is a largely undiscussed uh, 
uh, uh, untalked about um, form of Trinity, where when we ask who is God, we focus first on the fact that God is the eternal Father. And we launch from there, God being the source of the other persons of the Trinity when it comes to um, gaining their um, their identity, for instance, and don't 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 misunderstand me here. Dr. Branson isn't saying that God the Father created Jesus. What he is saying is that the Son is eternal because the Father is eternal, and the Spirit is eternal because of His relationship to the Father and the Son as well. The Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God, and yet is the Spirit sent from the Eternal Father. And the Son also uh, uh, sends forth the Spirit in other passages. But uh, germane to our study, just looking at Father and Son relationship here, the eternality of the Father is central as the Father in the monarchical Trinitarianism model, in the, mo- in the uh, monarchy of the Father model that Dr. Branson's um, demonstrating for us tonight. Who is God? God is the Father. He's the eternal Father. The Son, like the Bible says, is begotten from the Father. The Son proceeds from the Father in the sense that he's begotten, in that eternal sense. It's an eternal begettal. It's not a begotten, it's not a begetting that is to be equated with a birth or uh, a creation. That's not what the term begotten refers to when we say that Jesus is the only begotten of the Father. The word begotten there is rooted in a Hebrew word. We'll look at this next week as I'm drawing this part of my study to a close. The word begotten there is rooted in a, in a Hebrew term that um, relates to Jesus' preeminence as the um, not just the uh, the favored son of the Father, but the firstborn or the one who inherits the um, the the kingdom from the king. Uh, kind of like the crown prince would inherit the the, the 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 crown, the throne from the father. You know the the the, uh, the father king when the king passes his throne on to the son. That's this term begotten. Um, like like the psalmist says, uh, "You are my son today. I've begotten you." It's not that the king is born or birthed into existence excuse me, birthed into existence that day. Rather, he is the one that's declared by the father king in this model as the chief, the highest one to receive the preeminence in the mind of the Father. That's Yeshua. He is the the, the, the the chief recipient of God's glory and majesty and um, uh, power. And uh, he's the one that God is going to exalt to sit at his right hand. Indeed, has exalted him and glorified him and will do so again. So we're going to see Yeshua coming in his kingdom. He's the one in the book of Daniel that approaches the Ancient of Days. And so what Dr. Branson is trying to simply remind us of is that the one God, when we get to the New Testament, he's described in terminology as the Father. Yeshua repeatedly over and over um, points us to our Father in Heaven, right? That's the way he taught us to pray. Our Father who art in Heaven, hallowed be thy name. So the one God is one of the divine persons, namely the Father. That's not to say that Jesus isn't God or the Holy Spirit isn't God. They are God, and yet... More naturally, when we're reading through the language of the Bible, it's easier to identify God as the Father in that particular Trinitarian model and have less confusion when we're having discussions with Unitarians and people like that. We'll finish this next week. I think I will be able to finish this. I'm going to go all the way down through this um, 
part that you're seeing on my screen, and I'm going to dead end where it says, as you show God an examination of passages about the Trinity. And when we get there, then we're really done with our review. So we just have these paragraphs to cover, these three paragraphs uh, next week. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll start our study right uh, there with this particular paragraph. And that'll do it for uh, exploring the Shema, discussions on the issues of Trinity. Let's turn to our liturgy real quick. Uh, last week I read Genesis 1, 1 through 5 in the English, and then I followed it up with John 1, 1 through 5 in the Greek. Tonight I'm going to read the Hebrew, and only the Hebrew, from Genesis 1, 1, and then I'm also going to read the Greek from John 1, 1 through 5. And then as a bonus, not this week, but next week, I'm going to swap those. So, right now I'm reading Hebrew as it's connected to the Old Testament and Greek as it's connected to the New Testament. But next week I'm going to read um, Genesis 1-1 from the Greek and um, John 1-1 in the Hebrew. I'll swap the languages around to see what we can do with that, okay? We'll have some fun with our liturgy. So let's just look at this uh, starting over on the... Um, Right side of the page, right there. Genesis 1 1 says, Brishit bara Elohim, eta shemaim eta aretz. Verse 2, Vaha aretz haita, tohu vavohu vachoshek alpane tahom, vuruach Elohim, malachefet alpane hamaim. Verse 3, Vayomer Elohim yehi or vayehi or. Verse 4, Vayara Elohim et haor kitov. Vayavdeel Elohim ben haor uven hachoshek, and verse five, Vayikra Elohim la or yom ulchoshek karalayla vayehi erev vayehi voker yom echad, and that's Genesis one one through five in the Hebrew. Let's turn to the Greek. John one one through five, starting right there over on the right side of the page. Verse 1 says, In arche ein halagas, kai halagas, ein pras tan theon kai theos ein halagas. Verse 2, Hutas ein in arche pras tan theon. Verse 3, Panta di hiau tu, uh, autu, agenato kai chorus autu, agenato ude hein ha geganen. Verse 4, in auto zain, I'm sorry, zoain ein. Zoe ain kai hain he zoein ain top fast tone um anthropon and then verse five kai ta fos in te scatia scotiams scatia fane kai e scatia auto u katalaben and that'll do it for our liturgy for tonight. Let's turn to the short little video that we're going to watch tonight. I think it's about five minutes long. And after the video, uh, we'll simply dismiss in prayer. The video is entitled, Was the Holy Spirit with the People in the Old Testament? You ready? Here we go. Short Questions, Short Answers by Torah Teacher Ariel and the Bible. Copyright Tate's A Torah Ministries 2015. 
Let's look at our, this question for tonight. Question, was the Holy Spirit with the people in the Old Testament? Yeah, that's kind of an odd question, huh? Let's see what the answer is. Yes, the Holy Spirit was indeed present with the people in the days of the Old Testament. Yeah, that's a surprising answer for many Christians, believe it or not. He empowered these individuals, Bezalel in Exodus 31, 1-3, Othniel in Judges 3.10, Jephthah in Judges 11.29, Saul in his messages in 1 Samuel 19.20, and a host of others. Alright, a central role of the Spirit's work is to cause a man to declare Jesus as Lord, making him a true child of God, a clear reference to the salvation of an individual. Read Romans 8, 16. And that's going to become a central theme of my answer, so follow along. We know there's only one way to the Father per John 14, 6. This means that all persons counted as saved in the Tanakh must have also been empowered by the Holy Spirit to have faith in the coming Messiah, right? Even without knowing his name, Yeshua, Jesus. Later apostolic writings teach us plainly that regeneration of a man cannot take place without the Ruach Kodesh, the Holy Spirit. So, let's see this. Let's read and observe the language of the passage from 1 Corinthians. Uh, this is 1 Corinthians 12, 1-3, and I read this in my liturgy. Concerning spiritual gifts, I don't want you to be uninformed. You knew that you were led as pagans to mute idols. However, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So despite all, his, all of this, his ministry was slightly different back then than that of today because of his unique role and what happened after Acts chapter 2. And what was that? The Holy Spirit fell on all those people who were gathered there. Perhaps it's best to think of his ministry in the Tanakh as less expansive back then as compared to today. Get that? Less expansive. Less expansive is not to be equated with non-existent. In a very real way, the presence and primary ministry of the Ruch Kodesh as we know him today would always have to wait until the birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Yeshua Jesus. And that only makes sense. In fact, if we think about the, uh, this, right, we've got planet Earth, we've got Yeshua who left planet Earth, he's leaving Earth, and he, uh, the Holy Spirit was specifically sent to testify of Yeshua after Yeshua left this earth, that's John 14, 25 and 26. Let me read this verse for you in Hebrew. Breshit bara Elohim, eta shemaiva eta aretz, vaharetz haita tohu vavohu vachoshek al panei tohum, vruach Elohim merachefat al panei hamaim. By the way, that's the verse I read in liturgy. Did you know that the Hebrew word for spirit is ruach, which can also be translated variously as breath or wind? It's that circled red rare word there, ruach. So, when Messianic Jews such as myself refer to the Holy Spirit, quite often we use the term Ruach Kodesh, right? We've got a verse here from the book of Psalms. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit. Ruach Kachika, right? Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Since the Hebrew word Kodesh is a noun, a verse like Psalm 51.11 that I just read here where the phrase Ruach HaKodesh is found literally conveys the spirit, the sense of spirit of holiness. But Holy Spirit with holy function as an adjective 
like most people are used to hearing. And that works just fine as well, too. Catch me on pod, uh, catch my podcast on iTunes. Search term Ariel Hanavi. I've got lots of audio teachings there. But for those of you who prefer YouTube, uh, catch me on YouTube. And why don't you go ahead and subscribe to my YouTube channel? Why? Because I promise to upload new content every single week. Oh, Maine. Oh, Maine. that'll do it for the uh, video. Uh, let's close in prayer. Abba, bless your name, and I thank you for the truths of your word and the relevance of your scriptures that you have preserved for us, the importance of hiding your words in our heart so that we can be pleasing to you, so that we can be instructed by your Holy Spirit and know how to govern our lives. Lord, it's so important that we feed on your word daily, that we uh, ingest your truths, that we allow them to be um, uh, firmly rooted within us, uh, that they become the, um, the foundation for how we understand you and how we relate to your kingdom and how we relate to one another. Um, we're going to form our own opinions no matter what, but wouldn't it be better if the way we understand one another is dictated by the way we understand you. And thus, you have left us with instructions that are good, they're righteous, they are altogether true, and, and they, they are um, that which can and should be the, uh, the foundation of our communities. Um, help us, Lord, to continue to press in to your holiness, uh, turning from sin, turning to the lifestyle that you have described in the pages of your word, uh, empowered not by our own ingenuity and human wisdom, but empowered by the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit within us. This is the way that we will fulfill Torah, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8. We walk in the Spirit, and this is the way we turn away from sin and continue to lead a life that is meaningful, a light that a life that is a light to other people around us, a life that uh, we can um, know that we're being a witness uh, is the way that we walk by the Spirit and continue to walk according to your word. So help us, Lord, in this endeavor. We know it's not easy. The walk of holiness is certainly not an easy walk. But we know it is, in fact, that which you've called us to do. Uh, and we know by your Spirit you're going to empower us to do it. And so we will bless you for the lives that are changed as a result of the people that we meet and share the gospel with. And we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory, but shame Yeshua, Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. 
because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. 